You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Zhengyu Wan. And last week, you've already listened to part one of the history of Taiwan. Now, we continue with part two. So how did the DPP party emerge? Well, they founded the party around the end of martial law in the second half of the 80s. It was kind of, I mean, the DPP was just part of the Dangwai movement or the extra outside of the party movement. They were just a bunch of independents who um, didn't form a party, but they had a kind of like this sort of liberal united front. And the DPP was just a formalization of that. Okay, so I guess I'm trying to figure out when did they have formed the new government and how did that happen? Ah, so after the um, Formosa magazine incident, I mean, it was a very bad look for um, Zhang Jingguo. Okay. Chiang Kai-shek's son. And it became clear that the KMT could no longer um, just maintain its rule without some major changes. So, I mean, this is a good point as um, under capitalism, he had to force concessions out of rulers. Mm-hmm. So there, there were also just a lot of... Um, PR disasters. There was this one guy, he was a U.S. citizen, and uh, his name was Jiang Nan, and he wrote an un- unauthorized biography of Jiang Jingguo. So then the KMT had him killed in, in the U.S. Oh my God. Yeah. The KMT was pretty, it was pretty gangster. That sounds like a Pinochet thing. Like Pinochet did the car bomb incident in the U.S. for similar reasons. But- so you can see why the U.S. kind of had a, like, a tumultuous love-hate relationship with the KMT. Like the KMT was good for like its goals of like, same time, they were like, okay, these people, like, they had too many ideas of their own. It's a, it's a win of sorts. So, I mean, I think um, during the height of the Cold War, these sort of military dictatorships were kind of tolerated by the U.S. because they could get stuff done, mm-hmm. right? But then afterwards, the U.S. would prefer weaker bourgeois democratic governments that are easily manipulated that would just do the bidding for them and have less ideas of their own. Of course. And so now, can you talk a little bit about the Taipei credit affair? Oh, this was just another, 1985, this was just another incident that was just a political disaster for the KMT. Basically, there was a um, credit cooperative in Taipei. What's a credit cooperative? It's basically where people can just go and like borrow money for their businesses and whatever. Okay. What happened there? It was government run. I mean, basically, so then like, um, you know, before the 1990s, Taiwan, yeah, it was capitalist, but it wasn't that liberalized. I mean, you can see there was still a lot of government involvement in the economy. Mm-hmm. Right? That's part of how Taiwan was able to grow so fast economically. If it were a total laissez-faire, no government involvement, it would have it, it would have remained a shithole. Let's just let's just let's just be real. Mm-hmm. I think an important point that I want to mention is um, these sort of Bonapartist governments are tolerated by the U.S. around the Cold War because um, they really needed to build up model capitalist societies. <laughs> but after the socialist bloc fell, I mean, a lot of these economies are just forced into liberalization. Anyways, this was like one of the credit cooperatives. It kind of it was like a mismanagement and like 60 some companies became bankrupted and like over 100,000 people like um, lost their savings overnight. Oh my God. It comes with the mortgage crisis in the US from 2008 almost. <laughs> yeah. So, and since this was government run and the KMT was the only party running the show, this dealt a huge blow on the trust that people had in the KMT. Ah. Right? Yeah. So you can see where this is going. Like, Chang, Chang Jingguo, like, I am not a fan of the Changs, but I, 
you know, I, right now I'm just reading a, a book on his diary and just like, I, you know, I mean, he kind of had to feel bad for this guy because, I mean, it's not, he's not like his father who wormed his way into the power structure and took over the KMT. Jiang Jingguo was just kind of like born into this sort of, um, born to his father and then groomed to take over the government. And um, he just dealt with disaster after disaster. You know, he, he had the rising opposition in, um, in Taiwan, like U.S., cut diplomatic ties and then like all, all of his kids were fail sons oh lord so um, i mean there was no hope of um having his one of his kids succeed him and it's like um so then he resigned the next year right he didn't resign no he he he's, he remained so-called president until he died mm. but he became more lenient on the kmt's opposition because he knew that if he st- if he maintained his heavy-handed um crackdowns the kmt would be overthrown i mean didn't kennedy say if you make peaceful revolution impossible then the violent revolution becomes a necessity or becomes inevitable kennedy wasn't saying that in defense of violent revolution he's saying you need to you need to give sufficient concessions if you want to maintain your better alliances yeah so in 1986 the dpp was which is i guess now the heading party was formed right yes so talk to us a little bit about the dpp it was born out of this petty bourgeois opposition to the KMT, but um, at the same time, it just kind of be it, it kind of just was bought out by the bourgeoisie because now it's just another bourgeois party, you know. Eventually, in the 1990s, the constitution was amended, so then elections for the so-called president could happen directly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And they got all of that. So then how do they differentiate themselves from the KMT? Because at that point, the KMT was also just another just another party in a bourgeois democracy that people could vote for. So how do you differentiate yourself? I mean, you don't have that. You don't have much different. I mean, you're, you're not for socialism. You're not. So what did they do? I think at that point, it was just a lot of whipping up the existing animosities in the past hour. Because like, um, what I'm saying now is um, Jiang Jingguo did a lot to kind of um, just kind of ease the relationships between the Ben Shengren and Wai Shengren. And also, like, during this time, you had a lot of, like, Wai Shengren married to Ben Shengren who had kids. And then you also had, like, a new generation of Wai Shengren who were born in Taiwan. So then it was, it was like, okay, we're all basically at this point, we were, we were all born and raised in Taiwan. We were all like, what's the difference between us? We can all get along. And the animosities were beginning to die. But then the, now the DPP is coming out and they're just like, yeah, well, you know, the KMT did this, 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 Wai Shengren are bad. Ah, so they're trying to weaponize the animosity again. To get the support of the Ben Shengren, because they knew Ben Shengren were the majority of Taiwan's population. Ah, got it. So they use identity as opposed to economy to appeal to them. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, that's that's why um I, I like to say the, um, the opposition movement was just a democratization movement that was opposed to the KMT. But after the DPP formed, separatism became a package deal just to, to secure their vote. Can you explain this? I don't understand it. Because back then when, when the Changs were in charge, right, you, you had this sort of form of Chinese nationalism that was imposed on the Taiwanese people. And it was kind of it, it was it was kind of deformed Chinese nationalism. I mean, the CPC had control of the mainland. It's unrealistic to say that, oh, like, no, that's just temporary. And like, we're the true like um the spirit of China is with like us. Ah, so they don't have an identity. So the separatist movement provides an identity for them. But see, they had that. But then as the um, so-called ROC lost its place in the UN, as the US cut ties with it, the, the facade faded. And everybody knew that there was no way that the, the, the so-called ROC would retake the mainland. 
At the same time, though, I think in the 90s, they had to um, just replace this sort of Chinese nationalism with a newer, they had to just get rid of it. They didn't really replace it with much, but they left the void behind. But they had to get rid of it because at the end of the day, it was still Chinese nationalism. And if people identified as Chinese and they saw the rise of the mainland and they saw like how people's lives were improving on the mainland, then they might just think, hey, you know, well, that's the issue between the KMT and the, and the CPC. What does that have to do with us? We're all Chinese. Let's just like work together for a better future for all of us. And that's, um, that's good for the Chinese people, but it's bad for the U.S. imperialists. So then is that how the separatist movement came out? In the 1990s, the successor of Jiang Jingguo was Li Denghui. Yeah, he was terrible. He was terrible in, in a lot of ways. A lot of people look at him as like a, um, a rupture from the Chang's. And I tend to disagree. I think there are continuities and discontinuities. What were the continuities? People look at him like saying, okay, well, it was around that time when like the whole sort of Chinese nationalism was being eroded and like not actively pursued. People see that as a discontinuity. And on the surface it is, but I think it's also a continuity. The broader picture was to maintain Taiwan's status as a U.S. client. If the existing Chinese nationalism were allowed to just run its course and people identified with being Chinese and, and that wasn't being challenged at all, then, I mean, well, let's face it, most people would just be like, okay, our economy, like after the 2000s, they just be like, okay, our economy sucks, mainland's doing good, and um, yeah, we're all Chinese, let's work for a better future, right? Uh, yes, of course. So then what happened? So it was around this time. I mean, um, the 1990s were pretty interesting. I mean, a lot, a lot of the DPP people entered the legislative part of government, the so-called legislative UN, that's kind of like parliament. And they just start, started just like challenging the KMT's authority. But Li Denghui is an interesting case because um, he was the first um, so-called president of um, Taiwan, or the so-called president of the so-called Republic of China, or the leader of, effective leader of Taiwan, mm-hmm. who was Ben Shengren, or Taiwanese. And he was, um, he became leader because um, he was named um, Jiang Jingguo's so-called vice president during his final term. And Jiang Jingguo died in office in 1988. So he succeeded him. But at this point, people were just like, ah, Li Denghui is just kind of like a transitory figure. He wouldn't hold on to his power. But hey, he managed to um, consolidate his powers. How did he do that? Well, the main opposition to him was um, Hao Bochun or Hao Peichun who was the head of the military. Mm-hmm. So what he did was he he didn't want to just remove him from power because that might cause instability. It was a so-called promotion to be premier. Oh, smart. But by doing so, he stripped him of his military power because his power was in the military. On the surface, it was like a promotion, but in reality, it was a demotion. He, he was trying to strip him away from his power because the KMT had many factions, but when the Changs were alive, um, Chiang Kai-shek and then later his son were like the kind of like the father figure that kept all of the factions in check. Mm-hmm. When, he, when they died, though, that was the factions started um, contending with one another and Li Denghui represented the liberal segment of the KMT. Hao Peichun, the military guy, was um, he was anti-communist. But he was also kind of anti-U.S. Ah. He wasn't necessarily anti-U.S. Like, oh, we want to get rid of U.S. imperialism. But he just, he was just like, he was angry that the U.S. is always getting into Taiwan's affairs. And if he were able to consolidate power, he might have just like told the U.S. to f*** off and then like worked out a deal with the mainland that wouldn't have been beneficial to the U.S. That was a concern in the U.S. State Department. So um, the U.S. was kind of concerned about that. And Li Donghui was kind of, 
the preferred guy, but then at the same time, the U.S. was like, oh, we don't, we don't think this guy can hold on to his power. But he did. Li Donghui truly was, in a way, a student of the Changs. He knew how to uh, manipulate power. Need to RTFM on how to manipulate power? Tune in for our streams on Rockfin, YouTube, and Twitch. Whether it's a lazy Sunday afternoon with Lenin or a late night with Lenin, real revolutionary hours, who's up? Get some advice and jokes from the original cat lover and scourge to the bourgeoisie, Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov. And subscribe to our Substack at historically.substack.com. It is what is to be done. Also, head over to Spotify and check out Zhang Yu's music. And so what happened to Taiwan around that time? What was different in the 90s and early 2000s? Just in the 90s, democratization happened. And in 1996, the so-called president was directly elected by the people for the first time. Okay, in the year 2000, Song runs for mayor? Ah, uh, okay, so this is interesting. So um, there's this guy, Song Chuyu. He was the um, provincial governor of Taiwan in the 90s, mm-hmm. right? He was very popular. He was also the first provincial governor to be directly elected by the people. So um, there used to be a separate Taiwan provincial government from the so-called national government of the Republic of China. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it sounds kind of redundant because the only territories that, th- that the so-called Republic of China government actually has control of is Taiwan and just some smaller islands. Aha. Uh-huh. But um, so then, I mean, it makes sense to streamline the process and and just like get rid of the um, the position of of um, Taiwan's uh, provincial governor. I mean, the provincial governor existed just to remind the people that Taiwan is a province of China and that so-called Republic of China, like ideologically, we're like um, we're supposed to be like the entirety of China and that Taiwan is just a small part. But I mean, that facade was slowly beginning to fade, and Song Chui was very popular, but Li Donghui was concerned that this guy was had his eye on power mm-hmm. and had aspirations of his own and wanted to run for um, the so-called president. Mm-hmm. So Li Donghui just kind of, re- he revised the constitution and then um, froze the provincial government. He didn't get rid of it completely, but just froze it. So it just didn't serve any purpose anymore. And then, so then Song Chuyi no longer had had power. And then he chose Lian Zhan as his um running mate. And Lian Zhan was just like a typical KMT bureaucrat, son of a um of a KMT official. So he's just kind of didn't really have much of a character, whereas Song Chui had a lot of charisma and was loved by the people in Taiwan. But Song was also a, interestingly, Song was a Wai Ren, but he was popular among the Taiwanese people. How come? You know, he would just go to a bunch of like local areas, villages. He went to like every single. He went to like every single. Okay, so he's good at forming relationships and outreach, right? Yeah, yeah, he was good at that. And... His approval rating was like ninety percent. Oh wow. Okay, so okay, do tell us about what happened next. So, um, Li Donghui won re-election, and then Li Donghui kicked Song Chui out of the party. Oh my god. <laughs> and then after, since um Li Donghui was um finally democratically elected, he started expressing his two-state theory, which was um. The relationship between Taiwan and the mainland were special state-to-state relations. Mm-hmm. And the mainland did not take too kindly to that. Because in the past, although they'd had disagreements with the KMT, at least the consensus were relations between the KMT and the CPC were um, just between two contending um, entities that sought to represent all of China, but in reality represented their respective side of the Taiwan mm-hmm. Strait. Right? Yeah. 
Tuesday theory, but uh, my theory on why Li Denghui started expressing that because in the past Li Denghui kept on writing about um uh, the reunification of China under the Republic of China, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think he. Be- I don't think there is much of a discontinuity with Li Denghui just coming out as a separatist because um in the up until the early nineties with the fall of the um socialist bloc, it was especially after the incidents of uh, the Tiananmen Square incident, it was kind of mainstream to just believe that. The um, the CPC was standing on its last legs. Ah, it wasn't based on reality, but it was based on their belief or their prediction. So um, I mean, uh, it, it made sense by that point for Li Denghui to still be like, okay, um, when China is reunified and blah blah blah, because if China was reunified at at that point and Li Denghui was still in power, that he would have been the leader of the reunified Republic <laughs> of China. But as it, as it became more evident that that wasn't the case, I guess he was just a two state theory. So China was upset at Lee, and then um, it launched missiles over over Taiwan during the election in 1996. What happened there? I think it was a PR disaster for the mainland. It, it, it raised Lee's popularity because he was he was like, "Yeah, I'm not scared of you guys." And you know, actually, um, according to my um intelligence, those missiles didn't have warheads. Was that true? Yes. <laughs> okay. So I, I wonder. I wonder how many of them the Kim he spies in the mainland were screwed after Lee Teng Hui just came out and said that. Ah, that, that's smart. Okay, that's not very smart. Okay, so then in 2000, Song now runs again. So what happens with Song? Ah, uh, Song got kicked out of the KMT, so he runs as um he formed an he, he formed a new party called the People's First Party. Mm-hmm. And he runs against Lian Zhan, who was then the so-called vice president of Li Denghui. Yep. So now it's a split because um so I'm, when I talk about the blue camp, I'm talking about people who are more closely aligned with the KMT, and the green camp is like the DPP side. Okay. Right? I talked about how Song was super popular among the Taiwanese people, right? And Lian Zhang was just this kind of like this sort of suit, mm-hmm. kind of didn't really have much charisma. So there was a split in the blue camp. The green camp, the guy who came out as the DPP's candidate was um, Chen Shui-bian. Chen Shui-bian was one of the lawyers who, def- who um, defended the people in the, um, the Formosa magazine incident. When he was um, mayor, he had some weird things going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's kind of... Interesting. Okay. Yeah, he's all. He's always. He's always been pretty corrupt. People were surprised when he got caught in that embezzlement. How much did he embezzle? Over a million dollars, ten million, or a hundred million? Seven hundred million new Taiwan dollars were stored abroad. um, (laughs) That's a lot of money. Okay. In a Swiss bank, but I don't know. I I forgot how much that is in the U.S. and U.S. dollars. But he embezzled a lot of money, basically. So, what is going on in the 2000 election then? Um, the, the blue camp was split mm-hmm. because, um, if you add Song Chuyi's, um, Song only tailed behind um, Chen Shui-bian by a little bit, slightly. Like by four or three or four points, yeah. Yeah. So if the blue camp weren't split, if you add Song and Lian Zhan's um, votes together, they were still more popular with Chen Shui- than Chen Shui-bian. So the DPP, it won, but Chen Shui-bian won the election with 39.3% of the vote. Mm. That's not a lot. And then he kicks out Lee from the party. Chen Shui-bian wasn't DPP. Chen Shui-bian was a candidate. He didn't kick out Lee, but Lee got kicked out of the party because um. Why? Because of that two-state state theory? No, not because of that. Because the people in the KMT just felt that um they they felt that Lee kind of abandoned Lian Zhan in favor of Chen Shui-bian. Ah. And they felt that he was trying to erode the party from within. Okay. Yeah. So. Chen Shui-bian became the leader 
What was his policy? Like, how did he direct the country when he became leader? Well, he he won with less than 40% of the vote. So he had to just kind of, kind of maintain the status quo for a while. The DPP had no experience being the incumbent party because this was the first time there was a transfer of power between like parties in Taiwan mm-hmm. on the on the um, the highest level. So before then, it was just whatever the KMT was for, the DPP opposed. The KMT's for the KMT's like for nuclear power. The DPP's against it. The KMT's for um for um continued um economic development that was harmful in a way that was harmful for environment the, the environment. The DPP was for environmentalism. Only problem is that's good for elections. It's not good for running a society. So at the end of the day, the um, DPP still had to recruit like um, experienced people in the government to to work in the government. There was um, so they were just they had to just use um centrist or anti KMT bureaucrats who actually had experience running Taiwan. One of them was um Tsai Ing-wen, who was the um the current leader of Taiwan. She was the um head of the Mainland Affairs Council. Back then, she actually joined the DPP in 2004. But um, I mean, the DPP won one support basically through like liberal identity politics, you know. So the KMT is white southern, and white southern are mainlanders. Mainlanders are Chinese, so therefore, to be it to be anti KMT is to be anti China. Therefore, we need independence. Okay, it was kind of like kind of like the party platform. But um, when they ran, they were they had they had to assure the centrist voters that they're not going to move towards Taiwan independence. So it was like, oh, well, no, there's no point in doing that. We're already independent. We're called the Republic of China. So there'd be little things, though. Um, he kind of he's not going to pursue Taiwan independence, but you can't make the DPP voters feel betrayed. So he had to do little things. What did he do? You know, like um, add the word Taiwan in English to the passport. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, change. Um, That's very cosmetic. The it was very cosmetic. They changed the um the Zhonghua post the um the so the what is it the um the post carrier that was um government owned was called Zhonghua Post. Zhonghua means China. It's like another name for China, right? Mm-hmm. They renamed it to Taiwan Post, but then that got re- that got changed back in two thousand eight back to Zhonghua Post because the KMT won again and they didn't they wanted to get rid of that. It later stopped being state owned, but it was state owned for a while, and the, the and the state owned the um the majority of the shares for a while. The um the Chinese Petroleum Company mm-hmm. changed that to Central Petroleum Company. Wow. Okay. He's really getting um very cosmetic. It's very cosmetic. So he made a promise that he is not going to declare Taiwan independence, and that he won't change the um he won't change the name of the so-called Republic of China to the Republic of Taiwan. And that nor will he um, change the constitution to state that um, the relations between Taipei and Beijing are special state-to-state relations. And nor will he promote a referendum on reunification or independence. So we'll do nothing. <laughs> Basically, it's a, we'll, we'll maintain the status quo. But at, um, later on, when he was caught in the embezzlement thing, though, he didn't really change his official policy but by then um when he was caught in the embezzlement scandal mm-hmm. he had lost almost all of his support and the only people who supported him still were like the hardline separatists so then one day he goes to like this um fatba the formosan american formosan association for public affairs but they're it's a it's like a not it's an ngo that's based in dc that's like that supports taiwan separatism it's basically just um another one of those bullshit like U.S. imperialist 
organizations. Like when um when the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq happened, they actually called on um they called on um Chen Shui-bian to send um forces in Taiwan to assist America in the Middle East. Like that that's how that's how like stupid they are. But afterwards, um. In 2007, because um, he was caught in the scandal, I guess he had nothing to lose, and he just wanted. I, I guess the only support he had left were the um, were the hardline separatists. So he was like, "Okay, I'm gonna replace my four nos and whatever with the um, the four wants. Taiwan wants independence, and it wants the uh, a name rectification. So rectification means like changing the Republic of China to Republic of Taiwan. Taiwan wants a new constitution, and Taiwan wants development. And that um, Taiwan does that have a the issue of left and right, only the question of unification or independence, which is bullshit because any class society will have a question of left or right. Yes, of course. So he's just, um, he's a do-nothing guy. He kind of just, um, he also changed the, um, under his leadership, the education was heavily reformed to um, focus a lot less on um, Chinese, to like teach less Chinese history and teach less um, stuff that would instill Chinese nationalism in the people and just focus a lot more on Taiwan, which, um, I think it's good to focus, like, to teach more about Taiwan, but not at the expense of a Chinese identity. That's my own opinion. I don't think the two are. The two aren't supposed to be mutually opposed, but the DPP and Chen Shui-bian, they like to frame it in a way that makes it mutually opposed because it's good for votes that way. That's a very complicated identitarian relationship that turned, I guess, in the 1990s to the early 2000s. And I think it's important to understand if you want to understand today's um politics in Taiwan because a lot of it is a legacy of all of this that we mentioned today and so, which is why like when I look at like Westerners who speak on um Taiwan whether they're Westerners should, they just should not speak in my opinion but that's another story <laughs> whether they're whether they're for or against China it's kind of don't you don't aren't you starting to see that they just mix all of these different like trends complicated nuanced trends like into one another they're just like I see people who like um I saw this one guy you know so like um call a Taiwan separatist, Kuk Kai-shek. And I'm just like, aren't you realize these separatists hate Chiang Kai-shek more than mainland Chinese people do nowadays? In mainland China, Chiang Kai-shek was just like, okay, he was a bad political figure. He maybe, he made his contributions during the war of resistance against Japan, but ultimately he was defeated and he got kicked to Taiwan. There's no reason to really hate him that much anymore in the mainland today. They're just like, okay, he's, what's, what's, what's in the past is in the past. He was defeated. We're, we're doing well now. He was a he was a bastard, but he was our bastard. He was a Chinese bastard, and, and in Taiwan, it's, they they frame him as like this. Um, he was he was he was he, he was a vicious bloody tyrant, but they kind of use it in a way to frame it. So it's like uh these Chinese overlords came to Taiwan and they ruled us like a colony, and they the KMT means killed many Taiwanese, and um, you know they use it to um fuel this sort of um liberal identitarian politics not for the um betterment of the people i think it's very important for people to um address these things the abuses by the kmt and the white terror and stuff but they do it in a way that it's just so opportunistic for the dpp for example the um the um many of the people that were executed by the kmt were communist sympathizers they weren't separatists because um up until until like the 70s and 80s there wasn't much of a separatist movement there were a lot of them were communists, but then nowadays the TBP just frames them like as if, oh, they were the people who were killed by the KMT were like this, these Taiwanese freedom fighters who wanted independence. And, and it's just like, that's bullshit. So there's a lot of historical revisionism. Yes. And you know why? Because for the long, you know what the KMT's policies were on the, on 228? No. The official policy regarding the incident was just to not talk about it at all. Mm-hmm. 
So it was just kind of removed from history and people just kind of didn't talk about it. And when you do that, the problem is when you do things like that, you create a huge void where people can opportunistically rewrite history. And that's what happened. So I like to say that um, although Chiang Kai-shek and Jiang Jingwu were opposed to um, Taiwan independence, mm-hmm. they paved the road to the separatist movement in many ways by just by their through their mis- mishandling of the contradictions among the people. Wouldn't you agree? Probably. <laughs> yeah. I don't, uh, I, I just kind of said, like, Westerners shouldn't opine. And I feel like, wait, I shouldn't opine either. <laughs> <laughs> a second ago. So that's why I'm like, yeah, I probably agree. But uh, I just like told everyone not to opine. So yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's okay to, um, it's, it's okay to like have opinions, but I think just recognize that these things are very complicated. And many people in both Taiwan and mainland China don't get the full picture. Because both of them get their side of the story, but not both sides. But even then, like not the whole story. I mean, with, with Taiwan, it's just, um, you know, we have this sort of like, um, it, it's become a sort of identity issue at this point. And when things come become like, when you, when you involve identity, it's something that's sacred to people. And a lot of times people can't look at things objectively, right? And also just, there's so many complicated power struggles and power relations that it's just too much for people to understand. Uh, for most people to understand without like, you can't understand it unless you sit down and go out of your way to try to study it. And even then, there's still going to be a lot of stuff that you don't know. Like, I'm still learning new things every day. Whereas in the mainland, in the mainland, though, they don't have the CPCs not on the ground in Taiwan. So then, like... They have all what they can glean from media, I guess. Yes. And for the longest time, their strategy of um, outreach to Taiwan was to um go through the KMT. Ah... Starting in the 90s, because in 1992, there was, um, there was a meeting in Singapore by the two parties, which established a 1992 consensus, which is there's one China, and we both agree on that. Mm-hmm. And then um, there's two interpretations of what China is on both sides of the strait. And as long as we agree that there is only one China, we have a basis for working together and forming unofficial, forming party-to-party relations and just... Um, I mean, they needed that because um, by when Deng Xiaoping carried out his economic reforms, um, by the late 80s, Taiwanese investors and businessmen were going into um, the mainland to do business. So you needed, you needed relations on some level, just not state-to-state relations. I see. So the transition didn't happen with the DPP in the same way, I guess. Well, the DPP just likes to um, use this as proof that, oh, see, the KMT and the CPC, they're just like... Collaborators. They're, 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 they're collaborators. But then at the same time, when the DPP becomes incumbent... It still has to look out for these Taiwanese businessmen in the mainland. Mm. But a lot of times, like these Taiwanese businessmen in the mainland, though, they kind of they vote for the KMT, not because they really agree with the KMT on everything, but it's because they feel that it's better for business because there's more stability. Ah, Well, that makes perfect sense. And China's such a big economy that you can't ignore it. Yes. But here's the problem, though. What mm-hmm. brought us the DPP? It was the, the KMT's incompetence that brought us the DPP. So... I don't understand. The DPP is a shell of its former self right now. Right now, it, it's failed to, it's failed to win over the youth. Yeah, correct. So I mean, um, in the in 2008 though, I mean the the DPP though, the DPP didn't really become like as popular as it did today until the 2010s, because um by the time Chen Shui-bian's leadership, which was 2000 to 2008, he won re-election in 2004, but only by um getting shot. He's, <laughs> it's believed. Okay, there's no, it's inconclusive, but I tend to believe this. They hired a fake assassin to shoot him while he was campaigning. Like, Who's they? The DPP. Weird. That's so bizarre. In, in 2004, right before, like a day or two before the election. 
to get sympathy votes because he gets shot. But how did they get found out? I guess they didn't do a good job hiring the assassin or didn't. What is it? There were a lot of holes. Like one of the doctors on the team, like usually when you hire a doctor, like you get like a general practitioner almost. But this guy specialized in like um external like like external wounds. Huh? And then what happened? It's just kind of suspicious. I mean, he got he got reelected barely because he was he was um set to lose the 2004 reelection because he because he because he did nothing like he he, he so they were trying to get sympathy votes because of this incident. Because um in the 1990s and 2000s, like Taiwan's economy was really was on the on its fast track to liberalization. Like the the government owned enterprises were being sold off, and like government run like um government run like credit collectives were being like turned into banks. Like kind of like the the Citibank of Taipei was bought by um the um Fubang Bank. So I mean, with liberalization, you're gonna a lot of people are gonna get screwed over, right? Mm-hmm. So no matter who's in who's in government. The economy is going to stagnate and people are not going to be happy. Of course not. And then with Chen Shui-bian, people felt like he was just kind of the Taiwanese businessmen on the mainland just didn't like him because um, they, they didn't trust that he would maintain the status quo. And that, that's bad for business. So then in 2008, though, after his second term from 2004 to 2008 was when he was caught in that embezzlement scandal. And then what happened? So then Ma Ying-jeou, the KMT candidate, won very easily in 2008. Ma Ying-jeou used to be um, Jiang Jingguo's secretary, um, the secret- uh, the, um, the Chiang-, Chiang Kai-shek's son, who oversaw um, Taiwan's kind of economic so-called miracle. So I guess people have good um, memories of that time, despite the political repression. I mean, the economic- economics speak louder than politics at the end of the day in many ways. And um, he was Taipei city mayor. He had the image of being kind of just not corrupt and he was he was young he was he was good looking he he was very popular among um, female voters whoa <laughs> um just because he looked good ah I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that women voted for him just because he looked good but that did have a that did have a factor well they did vote for justin trudeau for that <laughs> exactly but th- th- it does play a factor because at the end of the day if like you're not if you're kind of apolitical and you're just forced to vote for if you had two choices and like you feel that neither of them are going to do much, then you tend to go for the guy that you find, mm-hmm. the, the person who you find looks better. Like looks do matter, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I mean, I understand. But Harper was also disgusting in other ways. So I understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he, Mindjol won, but he didn't really have his own faction in the KMT. But on the stat, on the cross-trade affairs, though, Ma was kind of, very firm on the status quo. No reunification, but also no independence and no use of force. What does no use of force mean? We're not going to um, start and end up in a situation where um, the issue of reunification or independence needs to be solved by force. Ah. In a departure from the Chen years, though, Ma Ying-jeou was open to just kind of opening up Taiwan's economy to mainland China. So that was like, so it was, um, it, it was also, um, he also established the three links with mainland China, direct post, direct transportation, and direct trade links. Because before 2008, if you were from Taiwan and you wanted to travel to mainland China from Taiwan, you had to have a layover outside of both mainland China and Taiwan. So usually it was Hong Kong. Ah, but then Thailand had Hong Kong had changed its relationship in 1996. No, even then, like afterwards, because Hong Kong is a special, uh, special uh, administrative region. Mm-hmm. So you just needed to have like a third party that was like out of outside the direct jurisdiction of either government. 
because Hong Kong was like it, even today, it's still um, mostly autonomous. It's just it's just um it's autonomous in that it can't go against um Beijing in terms of like um in foreign policy and stuff like that. But it still it still makes for the most part it makes its own decisions. Anyways, because the economy was stagnating, so my angel recognized that to um to revitalize Taiwan's economy, it meant having to form closer ties with the mainland. So what was the new relationship now? It was just a thaw. I mean, it was there was still it was still a status quo. No reunification. No independence. No use of force. But um, it was in a way that was acceptable, tolerable for the mainland. So on the surface, you know, things were good. People were happy with him at first, but then um, things soured very quickly because um, my, the KMT, like I said, doesn't do a very good job in winning over the youth, especially like the disgruntled petty bourgeois youth. Whereas the DPP just is very good at it. So the DPP, since it was no longer the incumbent party, it needed to win over votes again for the next election. Or the next next election, right? So um, around then there was like um, just red baiting Ma, painting him as like um, painting him as like a um, sellout of Taiwan. Oh, I see now. Okay, okay, this makes so much sense now because of the normalized relationship. They demonize it as a pro-China person. Yeah. So then um, the KMT at, is a very um, it's a party at this point that very that likes to play it safe. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. So when it when it comes to contentious issues, contentious at the time, for example, LGBT, it just doesn't take a position. Whereas the DPP, like before, like during the trend years, the DPP is not really known to be as it, it had the reputation of being like the redneck party almost. <laughs> Between 2008 and 2016 was when it kind of um rebranded itself as like the prog- like the really truly social progressive party. So it started embracing things like LGBT, for example. So that like the KMT just like by being a little bit too risk adverse lost out on a lot of opportunities to win over the youth, whereas the DPP took those risks and had a lot to gain from it. But also, I think um you know the pivot to Asia mm-hmm. happened during um Obama. What's the pivot to Asia? I feel like you can explain it better. Okay, U.S. foreign policy aimed at balkanizing China and making sure that the U.S. controls all the trade routes. Okay. <laughs> Basically, yes. Okay. <laughs> Not even balkanizing, but just containing China's economic rise. Exactly, which they failed at. So um, the Sunflower Movement was in 2014 when the KMT was about to sign a trade deal with the mainland, right? Mm-hmm. And um, there was a huge protest. The, the, um, the parliamentary building was broken into and occupied by protesters. And um, this kind of um, created a new new wave of like younger center-left youth kind of gravitating towards the green camp and also the formation of the new power party which if you look at its party platform i mean it's um it's a little bit maidan-esque you know like ukrainian like maidan oh maidan okay got it maidan it appeals to this sort of like pseudo-left populism but you know because um i mean the economic gains that were made from trade with the mainland during the my years People felt that it entered the pockets of the pro-KMT capitalists. Well, things were still like not too good for the average Joe. I mean, there was still a lot of like, you know, unemployment and a lot of youth who like go through college, kind of like what we see in the U.S. You know, they go through college, 
and all and then like they end up just not having a high paying job where even like you get like an advanced degree only to work in like a low paying service sector job and that kind of it, it sucks you know a lot of people just feel like their talents are aren't being utilized so they're kind of feeling economic frustrations yes i mean when you look at these sorts of movements what people need to understand about movements that are color revolutions or similar to color revolutions is that there needs to be an element of legitimate dissatisfaction that is then hijacked to promote some sort of ulterior goal, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not good when people just say, "Oh, every every one of these people was just like paid for by the CIA or whatever." I mean, okay, sure, sure. There's some, there's going to be some actors who are you know in the pockets of the NED, mm-hmm. but if there wasn't that existing legitimate dissatisfaction, it wouldn't really go far. Aha, that, that makes sense. Right. This this is the same when even with the Hong Kong protests, as much as I'm opposed to the protests, I understand that um they were only able to get that big because there is a lot of existing problems there. Frustration like among the youth without them, the color revolutions couldn't have happened. Or you look at um you look at the fall of the socialist bloc in Eastern Europe in the late 80s and early 90s. A lot of that there were there were definitely legitimate grievances that um were taken advantage of by imperialists. What happened here? That gets to where we are in Taiwan today. 2016, Tsai Ing-wen, the current leader of um, Taiwan, gets elected. So Taiwan's been under DPP leadership ever since 2016. So from 2000 to 2008 and 2016 to now, Taiwan has not been under KMT leadership. And um, from 2008 to 2016, when Taiwan was back under KMT leadership, it was um, kind of when the um, cross-strait relations were at the highest point. But the KMT did not do a good job in uh, maintaining the support of the people within within the island. And now you factor in all of those like identity issues that we talked about earlier, then you can understand why um, Taiwan is the way it is today. That makes a lot of sense. So, how do people find your music? On Spotify, my name is under both. It's like written Romanized and in Chinese. But if you look up Xiangyu, X-I-A-N-G-Y-U. Okay. You can find it on Spotify and YouTube. Um, let me see. Let me see what happens if you look up Xiangyu on YouTube. Uh, we'll include a link in the description. And how do people find you on other social media like Twitter? Uh... My, my Twitter handle is at not Xiangyu, N-O-T-X-I-A-N-G-Y-U. It's because I've been suspended like two times, and yeah. So then, uh, like, and, and uh, not, not, not the same guy. And, and we'll also include a link to Carl Zaz's podcast for the long series, which is fantastic. I've checked it out already. It's one of the best podcasts, uh, Silk and Steel. And what I like is that it's a good Chinese point of view because Carl's really good with English, and there's no like Orientalism, if that makes sense. He's uh, he's also like um he's he's also like the um the cool boomer uncle. Is he Boomer? Okay, he was on this podcast last year, and is he older than us? He's older than me. Um, he he was born shortly after Mal died. Oh, okay, he's much older than both of us. <laughs> yeah, he was born in I believe that seventy six. Then he looks very young, but yeah. Anyways, what are you working on next? So speaking of Silk and Steel, I'm actually doing a series on the um Korean War, but from a Chinese perspective. So like um Chinese China's involvement into in the Korean War. Oh, okay. Well, once you finish that, you should come back here to promote that too. Okay, we'll we'll do. Maybe we can get both of us on. That would be perfect. I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And um. I'm working on my next album. 
right now. So that's going to be coming out hopefully at the end of this year or beginning of next year. Ah. Hopefully. Cool. I'm working with um. You know um. Do you know Carlos Martinez? Uh, no, I don't. He's a political commentator, and um, he writes a lot of cool stuff. He also does like um video interviews with um just communists from throughout the world. And but he's also a very very talented producer. And mm-hmm. He's doing um he's doing um quite a bit of the beats on my album. Oh, that's really cool. Okay. I, yeah. I, so I, it's gonna be stylistically different from the first two, the other two albums that I have on um on YouTube and on um Spotify and like the other streaming platforms because like the um my last last album was produced by myself. The beats were made by myself, and I'm not I'm not the best beat maker, but I wanted to challenge myself and make the beats. And then the last album was made by a friend of mine, Ransom Notes. Who was a? He's a. He's a kind of a. Mo, most of the beats he gave me were more boom bap, uh-huh. so it's a little bit more reminiscent of the '90s. But this, um, this upcoming album is a little bit more um, different from the two, and it's a little bit more modern in its style, but also retains some kind of. I mean, the Carlos Martinez is a little bit older than I am, so I mean, he grew up listening to boom bap, but he's also not trying to recreate the '90s feel. So it's there's kind of a bit of a. You'll find out it's not exactly the same as the um the beats that are popular now, but it's definitely very modern at the same time. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, come back when you finish that too, so we can kind of talk about maybe something more esoteric like the music. Oh yeah, podcasts are like my only way of promoting my music at this point because um I mean you're blacklisted from everything. <laughs> not necessarily blacklisted, but um in 2018 I was not my album was nominated for a best hip hop album in the um. In the Golden Indie Music Awards in Taiwan, so um, I submitted it as a joke. Mm-hmm. I didn't. Think, no, I, I, didn't I love think that would... album, though. Oh really? I I didn't think. That's how I found you. I think that's the 2019 album. Oh no, okay, no, about. I found you in the two. Yeah, not the 2018, you're right? Yeah, but um, anyways, I, I I got um nominated. So since I got nominated, like it kind of forced um music magazines to interview me. I just started talking about like my communist beliefs and stuff like that, which is kind of interesting. I'll, I. I I feel like maybe they're not going to repeat the same mistake again, though. So if you add my listeners from um, mm-hmm. Taiwan and mainland China together, they make up more than my Western audience. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But if but then like my Western audience is um pretty sizable, too. I mean, I don't have a big audience at all, but I'm, I'm talking about proportions. My Western audience, because of like podcast appearances and being on Twitter, it's kind of grown unexpectedly. But my main focus is still on my Chinese audience, which is why my music is in Chinese. But I do do English subtitles, and um, yeah, it's great. Dude, streaming platforms in the mainland, though, they I need to figure out how to get them on there because Quibi. Um, uh, I'm sorry, censorship. I'm no, I'm already on Quibi. Uh, they don't censor me at all. No, no, no. But if you're if you're talking to, if you're talking about um if you're trying to get yourself on um NetEase and platforms like that, music platforms, you're really ah. strict because the way the censorship works is um the government issues directives to these companies and these companies carry them out and these companies want to play it safe because they don't want to lose their license, they don't want to get in trouble with the government. So anything that's just even slightly political, regardless of context, a lot of times you just get censored. The Chinese apps have not censored me, and they love my content. So, well, you're first of all, you're posting in English, and second of all, it's different from those apps like social media apps compared to like this these like music streaming apps, ah, which is okay, like I see. It's, it's a lot more bureaucratic. But my my plan though is um I understand why there is censorship. At the same time, I 
I'm a little bit unhappy with the way that they overdo it and throw the baby out with the bathwater. So for my upcoming album, my plan is to make a edited version for the mainland platforms, which just um, blanks out all of the potentially, just even potentially sensitive words and just put it on there. So at the same time, it just kind of highlights how ridiculous the censorship there is. So hey, don't say I don't have any criticisms of the Chinese mainland. I do. Just um, I'm not trying to use them to justify regime change is all. Aha. Well, thank you so much. And this was one of the best interviews. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.